honesty hour, I did not know what I was doing in regards to launching this podcast. And I wouldn't have been able to do it without Anchor. Anchor makes starting a podcast super, super easy and allows you to not only use their platform to distribute the podcast, but you can even go on your phone or computer and record and edit the podcast right on their platform. Best of all, it's totally, totally free. So if you're interested in starting a podcast, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. I started to do that and and started to get some success making small, single million, $2 million investments on behalf of Motorola. And immediately, a lot of these companies started to just grow and blow up. And so one of the earliest companies I made an investment in is a a company... um, uh, that uh, called SnapTrack that I invested $2 million in. Um, and it was only worth at the time, I think $20 million when I invested in it. And a year later, we sold the company for $1 billion. Wow. Turn your $2 million investment into a $120 million investment in 12 months. So that, that instantly kind of catapulted my profile within Motorola and and it was really from there that I ended up making you know, many other very successful investments uh, and grew the, pro- the, the investment program to you know, a value of about a half a billion dollars in its first four years. So welcome to the Strange on Purpose podcast. Um, today I have on Matthew. Matthew, uh, thanks for jumping on today. And there's a ton of people that are going to be listening anywhere from the sneakerhead to esports space to the um, the entrepreneur space to kind of everywhere. And um, a lot of people that I we do have on, there's a ton of people that have done something that might have not have gotten the type of recognition it deserves, or might have not have um, have worked on these amazing projects, but not too many people know about them. And that's kind of our the the um, the vision behind Strange on Purpose and what we're trying to do. And I've been following you on Instagram for three, four months now. Um, I've heard, I've read a ton about you, and you're definitely out there. And it's a privilege for me to have you on today. But there's going to be a lot of people that are listening today that maybe don't know who you are or something like that. Do you want to get into who you are and what do you do? Sure. Uh, well, first of all, thank you. It's very very cool to to be part of uh of the program and to be invited to even come do uh the podcast um i am i guess a recovering lawyer and a recovering uh tech investor slash entrepreneur so for the probably the first 10 years of my career i was um head of uh, not only kind of the investment arm for Motorola, but I did things like merger and acquisition of technology companies. Uh, I tried my best to be as nerdy and as geeky as possible with technology, Um, learning about mobile back in the day when it was um, GPRS and 2G technologies. um, And music streaming wasn't even involved. It was downloadable music files and uh, Napster on mobile and, and a variety of kind of cool things like that. Camera phones were all starting to take off. Um, 
and sort of did that and invested in a variety of young kind of technology companies. And after about 10 or 12 years, I kind of fell more in love with um, the consumer in general. And in order to kind of understand the consumer, you really have to be, you know, in close proximity with the consumer, not kind of hidden in the back with engineers developing more black boxes and worrying about lines of code and the size of memory and how much, you know, bill of materials is, but, but really what does the consumer want? Who is the consumer? And so about three or four years ago, I kind of really shifted my investment thesis, um, reshifted my entire kind of passion and started getting into more of um, lifestyle brands and CPG and kind of, you know, why does the analog still matter? Uh, why do we still wear clothes? Why do we still love shoes? Why do humans still like collecting stuff? Um, and so we, you know, I've kind of embarked on this mission of always trying to continue to stay within the younger entrepreneurial, young startup, but really in a fashion that is to me more, um, fashion focused, more hospitality, more food and beverage, more wellness and beauty. Um, and it's been really, really a very, very cool and seems like a natural shift from, from being in tech to, to, to lifestyle. That's awesome. And seeing that, seeing that growth and hearing that growth and being able to, I, we chatted before I started recording, but see, being able to see and read about your your growth as a professional what has driven you to keep growing and what has driven you to uh continue to look for more for yourself and then for obviously for your family and everything yeah i, I think i've been very very fortunate to uh have partnered and met up with um a guy named adam petrick who's the global director of marketing for puma and i met up with him over three and a half years ago, or about three and a half years ago, through a mutual friend of mine in my hometown outside of Boston, and um, met Adam, who's you know really he's younger, he's a few years younger than me, but still an ultimate visionary, responsible for relationships with Jay Z and and Rihanna when Rihanna and Fenty were a, a partner at Puma, and he really kind of has enabled me to utilize my. I guess, rich background in, in technology and user experience, um, but also into things like culture and fashion and lifestyle and really have a almost a license to look at how so many different creatives can contribute to not just Puma, but Puma's strategic vision, its own partners like Rock Nation, its own kind of events and ecosystem that um, Puma is one of many brands that participate in like Art Basel or music festivals or youth sports um, or charity programs and social justice. And so it's, you know, when you're given that kind of license, your job, my job has really become uh, someone who finds a lots of amazing new artists or creatives and relationships and rotate those puzzle pieces to see if somehow they can fit in any of our goals. And not only has that expanded in the last three years beyond Puma into a whole host of other brands, but it's also allowed me to really be 
um, aggressive in finding kind of young 16, 17, 18, 19 year old um, digital creatives, fashion creatives, entrepreneurial creatives, uh, etc. So I think that whole ecosystem has allowed me to um, burn even a bigger passion to, to be part of the space and to be relevant in the space. Um, and of course, I'm a lot older than most of these young creatives. So I have a chance of bringing a wealth of business experience and operational experience to, you know, 25 year old designers that are amazing designers, but frankly, they're new to starting businesses. So it ends up being a very symbiotic and, and ultimately a, a fulfilling um, role that I've been able to, to develop and grow over the last three years. That's awesome. And seeing, seeing that, I mean, I was just at ComplexCon a couple weekends ago in Chicago and seeing how Puma just embraced the community of uh, not only people that rep Puma hard, but just anybody who was there and they invited anybody through their booth. They actually created this, um, the, the dunk contest there. They had 2K going and all this stuff and showing that they actually cared was something like it. Every time that we were just kind of walking around, we ended up every time at the Puma kind of uh, activation and everything like that because we knew at the end of the day, like, hey, there's going to be something cool going on here. We're not just waiting in line to wait in line. We're waiting in line for something that something cool that Puma's doing. And in talking, I, I met a ton of cool people um, that had traveled to Chicago just for the event and just for this Puma activation. And in talking, there's some loyal Puma heads and then there's some loyal uh, people that just I actually just want to be involved and get stuff um, and, and wait in line to get the next new thing. And it's it's crazy the, the community that Puma and then you, yourself has built. Um, and that's something that we put a huge focus on here uh, at Urban Misfit Ventures. Um, I haven't even told you what we do, anything like that. I just, honestly, I asked Matthew to just jump on the podcast and we can kind of go from there. And I appreciate you jumping on with a lack of detail. Um, but community is something huge for us. We, we spend a ton of time. Uh, we create a ton of content for LinkedIn specifically, but then we each have our personal brands, whether it's our own Instagram account, whether we have our other Instagram accounts, we want to make sure that we're investing in ourselves and we're investing in each other at the same time. And anybody who does invest into us, whether that be time um, actually coming out to an event that we host or something like that, we actually get back and do something for them. So um, I, I applaud Puma actually being that huge brand uh, that a ton of people know and can, can align themselves with. Uh, at the end of the day, actually giving back to the community is, is massive. So I applaud you and Puma for that. But moving like moving back even further before uh, you you found that kind of your next new walk in life, uh, how did you get started with Motorola and what what kind of led you in into the path of, um, hey, I'm starting in 1990 right here as an entry level position to running that Motorola investment arm and kind of investing into these companies? Yeah, I think in, in specifically the case of what we would call corporate venturing, which is really what it was. It was basically large corporations that had a need to go find new technologies and new talent. And, and you, there's two ways to do it, right? You can um, 
uh, buy it or you can build it. Yeah. And so these new technologies, you can build it with your own engineering teams, and but you kind of have to know what you're looking for in order to build it. Um, whereas you can buy things that opportunistically you can stumble upon and find out that it's actually something that you really will need. And and at the time in the in the I guess it was the late '90s or middle '90s, um, I had worked uh, as an intern in the M and A group at Motorola and started to look at smaller and smaller um, deals or, you know, smaller investment opportunities. And Motorola really had no way of evaluating what uh, the value could be to owning 10% of a $8 million company. And of course, in the late nineties, people know that Silicon Valley and the growth of these amazing multi-billion dollar, eventually multi-billion dollar companies like Yahoo and Cisco and et cetera, Intel, um, they all started, you know, as young companies. And so I made this kind of argument within Motorola. And at the time I was 25 or 26 years old, I made the argument that, look, we should own 5%, 8%, 10% um, of these younger companies that we're going to start to work with because in some extent we're putting them on it's no different than a record label today or it's no different than you know the way that um collabs are done in fashion it's yeah. you're going to put a young designer on um we're going to put these young entrepreneurs on and they're not going to spend any money and yet still be afforded this massive amount of visibility and and production and so I started to do that and, and started to get some success making small single million, $2 million investments on behalf of Motorola. And immediately a lot of these companies started to just grow and blow up. And so one of the earliest companies I made an investment in is a, a company um, uh, that uh, called SnapTrack that I invested $2 million in. Um, and it was only worth at the time, I think, $20 million when I invested in it. And a year later, we sold the company for $1 billion. Wow. Turn your $2 million investment into a $120 million investment in 12 months. So that, that instantly kind of catapulted my profile within Motorola. And, and it was really from there that I ended up making you know, many other very successful investments uh, and grew the pro the the investment program to you know a value of about a half a billion dollars in its first four years, um, and so it was proving to the old guy network at Motorola that we should be placing bets on the younger uh, kids and the younger entrepreneurs, and so that's what I mean in the sense that I've had a lot of this experience in in business and operations and risk-taking. Um, and so it seems to have scaled well in kind of my new adventures in, you know, kind of lifestyle and luxury brands. And that, you know, even today, the discussions I have now with Puma and others is if you're going to invest hundreds of thousands of dollars into these young brands to do, you know, multi-season collections, uh, create experiences for them at ComplexCon or whatever it is, why don't we take ownership in these brands and become young, become owners in young brands? Because in over time, you'll see that they'll actually do really well. And yeah. that thesis is really, to some extent, New Guards, right? New Guards owns 
um, off-white and they own Heron Preston and they own them because they've leveraged their operation, their common infrastructure, their relationship with, with retailers uh, and distro to make those young designers have a much smoother pathway to market. And in return, those designers are giving up some ownership in their company because they know it's a lot easier for them to partner with someone to grow infrastructure and grow, you know, build an accounting department and to build a distribution network than it is for, for Virgil or Heron or whatever to go and hire 100, 200 people themselves and grow it. So my career has had this, you know, very successful kind of prototyping blueprint um, in technology with entrepreneurs and young companies that I think we're starting to make some progress in morphing that into lifestyle and luxury brands. That's awesome. And seeing that, I mean, obviously the correlation between um, the, I, I hate when people do this, but a lot of people say, hey, you're really, Izzy, you're really passionate about shoes. Why are you really passionate about shoes? But they don't know the, the numbers behind it. They don't look at, hey, look at how, how this shoes uh, can relate to me building my early stage startup right now. And this is how um, this billion dollar industry that I'm studying might be able to be applied to our operations or something like that. And Bob, uh, I just read the book, This Is Not a T-Shirt by Bobby Hundreds. Yeah. And um, I have a couple uh, of founders and employees that I, I recommended the book to. And uh, one of our founders owns his own streetwear brand. It's called Unfinished Legacy. And he was like, oh, so you, you want to start your own streetwear brand like me? And I said, no, that's, that's not what I want to do. It's, it's mainly because I, I read this book and I realized that there's a ton of stuff that Bobby down, I mean, maybe 10 years ago is was struggling with that we are today. And he talks about maybe we, not, we can't get ourselves out of the same hole in the same way, but he gives advice and he gives that real life experiences that it's not just about, hey, I own this streetwear brand and this is what I did and you can't apply it because you own your own agency or anything like that. At the end of the day, you can apply, you can take little things and apply it to what you're doing on an everyday basis. And that's what I, I love. Like you, uh, one of our, or the CEO of the company is really involved in the um, like really involved in esports, and then he's studying esports hard, and then he goes and reads stuff about like Napoleon and stuff yep. like that, and and it's crazy because he's taking stuff from these books about these old guys that a lot of people still are learning about in history, um, in history class, and applying it to today and into today's um, into what we're doing today. Um, but what goat like? I, a lot of people, we got a lot of sneakerheads now that I started my own segment about shoes. So there's going to be a lot of sneakerheads that are wondering, like, what goes into a collab between Puma and X artists? I have Alexander John um, going to be jumping on here, hopefully in September, depending on how his, his next launch with Saks goes. Um, and I, I've been IG messaging in back and forth, and it sounds like an amazing process but a crazy process and the same thing goes i mean if we want to talk milwaukee Giannis has been working on his shoe for two three years now and it just now launched so what goes into that from a brand's perspective and then a hey Giannis or alexander john's perspective 
Yeah, no, it's a great question. I mean, does the collab in general with sneakers can be as detailed and as long, you know, from a time perspective, but also from a design perspective um, as you'd want it. And and I guess the, the challenge is, is how much um, integration and how much intersection uh, and how wide is the intersection between the designing collab partner and the, the kind of the house brand in this case Puma do you want there are instances where you know some collabs are very simple where um, a designer just wants to you know have approval on the way certain aspects look whether it's embellishments or CMF colors materials and finishes but they're not necessarily concerned with production they're not necessarily concerned with how the shoe shape looks like. They're not concerned with the template um, uh, or the silhouette. Um, and then there's others who are asking, can I redesign everything from the outer sole to the midsole to, you know, can we do this embellishment? Um, they want to argue over the aglets at the tip of each shoelace. They want it to be 14 karat gold. Um, but I think it comes down to um, how much are you trying to uh, build, um, you know, the, the the product as it as it's going to be released? Is it the case of it wanting to look more like the uh, designer's product co-signed by Puma, or is it going to look like a Puma product that's co-signed by the designer? And that's you know sometimes that the distance between those two is very small. Sometimes the distance between those is very, very, very big. And so, you know, in the shoe industry today, it takes around 14 to 15 months to build a shoe and launch it. And that's from the time that you go ahead and decide to shake hands and sign a deal memo to the time that it's going to be ISD or we call it in-store um, date. And so, you know, that 14 months can be as long as 24 months, right? If you want to spend an extra nine months on going back and forth and how many times the sample review is, um, how many times you are going to change out materials, etc. So we try to just be as flexible as, as possible. We don't try to um, convince the designer to shorten any part of their creative cycle. We want them to have access to as many types of materials considerations, but also we need to just make sure that we leverage our supply chain and we lend, leverage our vendor base because we get a lot of the benefits economically because of the sheer volume. And that's something that young designers don't get. They actually don't get to buy you know, products at low, 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 low cost or materials at low, low cost because they have to buy um, so few of it. So the minimum order quantities are small. So the prices are high. Wow. So we get to give you a young designer, an entire supply chain and a vendor base, and you can go find anything in, in that vendor base. Um, whether it's, you know, weighted cotton, whether it's new types of insole gels, whether it's, um, as I said, eyelets, aglets, lace locks, whatever it is, there's so much to do. So, we try to think of it as a white canvas or a blank canvas for our designers. And you can put as much as you want into it, or you can put really your signature touch in it. But the other thing that I think that really helps now is that we can make shoe collections with partners down to 500 pairs. So we don't even need the pressure to say, look, you've got to sell 50,000 pairs. Yeah. We can 500 pairs with young designers, which really allows them this chance to be put on 
and to share their vision in a footwear form um, really, really, really effectively. That's awesome. And seeing, I mean, you, as you're working with these young designers, you, you mentioned earlier the 25-year-old designers or even the 19-year-old designers and seeing them, I don't know, um, starting at 500 pairs and then growing and growing their brand to the point where they can maybe fulfill a 50,000 pair order or something like that. And actually seeing that evolve must be amazing from your seat uh, just to see them evolve and see them grow and see how their their design process, but then see how they as individuals change throughout the entire process. Because at the end of the day, um, it kind of perfect segue into what we're going to talk into next is at the end of the day, a lot of people as they, and entrepreneurs as honing in on, um, loved their ego stroked. Um, and they loved, uh, the, um, I'm, I'm reading the book. It's called ego is the enemy right now. And, um, I just posted a LinkedIn video about how I, I think a lot of people, I, I am 100% guilty of having a massive ego and that's me. Um, but I know when it needs to be checked and a lot of people realize, Hey, maybe your ego needs to be checked or they don't realize when the right time to do that is. And seeing from your, your point perspective, working with young designers, working with young entrepreneurs, whether it's launching their own brand or whether it's launching their own tech, um, company back at Motorola, what have you seen, um, from an entrepreneur perspective that kind of hinders their ability to allow their companies and their brands to continue growing at the pace that it is? Yeah, there's, um, there's kind of a, there's some natural barriers uh, that happen when young designers and young entrepreneurs start their business. The first is usually like, I would call them, you know, kind of revenue barrier, almost revenue milestones, but they act like barriers. So for instance, you know, anyone can kind of grow their business to a million dollars. But then I think half of them have problems growing beyond a million. And then of that half, they can get to four or five million. uh, And then after that, half of them fall out. And, you know, then you got to get to over 10 million. Typically, those revenue milestones are met or not met because the entrepreneur um, kind of has an issue with uh, several things. One is certainly ego. They always think that their way is the best way and the only way. And so that naturally kind of plays itself out, right? If you can't listen and you're not willing to change or alter or adapt, then you're just going to put yourself out of business. And I think a lot of people do that sheerly because of ego. The second is, a lot of them aren't willing to um, find or are unable to find kind of an experienced voice or an experienced board of, of directors or uh, experienced advisor network who can help them um, grow, help them make smart decisions around scaling, uh, where to invest. Um, and so... I think that also has stymies a lot of success in the young designer world is, you know, they, they take off, they grow to a million, they grow to 2 million and they think they have the answers. And then, uh Oh, they're now in an argument with their business partner 
or you know they throw one of them out or there's a divorce in the in the original two founders and they don't have any adult supervision i would call it to kind of help them resolve um the scaling part um so i think having just better advisory you know big brothers big sisters around to really help them um leverage the experience i think would help them prevent making simple mistakes and the third is capitalization i think that young designers are always thwarted in growth because for some reason they're not thinking down the road about how do i capitalize my business to grow it and so they'll sit at 3 million 4 million dollars of revenue but they can't get to 8 million because they didn't secure the financing to buy you know four or five more million dollars worth of product and so they they have to wait till they collect the 4 million of the first revenue before they can put it back out and etc 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 so it becomes this vicious circle that i keep making 4 million every year because i'm not growing my capital base and so some of that's also an advisory um situation where if you found advisors they would help you think through can i get purchase order financing for another 2 or 3 million can i get a line of credit that will allow me buy 3 or 4 million more um uh orders of 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 product so i think those are kind of you see those over and over again and 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 i whenever i get a business plan to invest in some of these brands or get an advisory uh opportunity to become an advisor i always look through the business plan and the business model to see do they have a strong board of advisors do they have big brothers and big sisters that will join me in helping navigate them mm-hmm. um i can tell they're really talented which is great are they listening can they listen right that goes to the whole ego thing because if you oh, can't right. listen then you know it's going to be uh, a long long road and third is is how does the company run from a business standpoint uh cash flow are they capitalized are they spending money efficiently um and those three things usually if they're great check the boxes of all three then they have i think a, a great 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 chance of succeeding um if they're missing one of those three i think then you know that becomes some 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 areas of of, of caution and and concern yeah and it's it's funny you brought up the the mentor network and the line of credit the mentor network and the advisory or the board of advisors or directors is something that like we've been debating for a while in regards to a board um but since we've been debating it we actually uh picked up a ton of amazing mentors uh that have built their businesses not only here in Milwaukee but in New York and LA and all over the place that we can call at any point and say hey um i'm not a finance guy so hey matthew um i don't know what i should do in this box or this box or this box and uh they've been able to kind of push us to that next level and then the next thing that we did do is we got ourselves a business coach but not a business coach that's uh in instagram ad or anything like that we actually went through a whole bunch of different references um and picked up a business coach her name's rebecca um that has a actually done something and that that was something huge to us we vetted out a couple business coaches and we wanted to make sure that she was uh she actually did something or he or she did something and did something that can directly attribute into what we're hoping to succeed here um so rebecca i mean she was the only uh chief technology officer for the state of wisconsin she worked with all she's built businesses and helped built 
uh, build businesses from uh, literally nothing to um, over $500,000 in revenue in just a couple months. And that was something not only money wise, we just wanted to make sure we aligned with her because she has that track record of success. And if we just align ourselves with somebody off Instagram that guarantees us X, Y, and Z, um, we're not going to get to X, Y, and Z the right way. Um, and by Instagram, I mean the courses that you see on sponsored ads or the guarantees of millions of dollars or something like that. And one of the things that Re Rebecca actually brought up to me and Q um, was that line of credit. And she said, hey, if you're if you're wanting to get to that next level, you're going to have to take bets on yourself. And whether that's a bet on yourself uh, to sell um, Northwestern Mutual on this big project or um, actually take a bet on yourself and put your put your money where your mouth is and say, hey, let's let's take our bet, bet on ourselves and do open a line of credit and get approved for this and uh, start actually traveling to places that um, we're sending proposals to and stuff like that. We were very honestly when we started our company uh the four founders got together and thought we were going to do this uh interview a ton of people that have been impact impactful in the startup space in the fashion space in the influencer space and we were going to travel around and do a whole bunch of stuff like this and we sat down after a month and we said wait this is going to make us money so we pivoted very quickly into the agency space where we have these personal brands and we I, I hate calling ourselves ourselves influencers, but LinkedIn does it for us. Um, we we essentially we sit down with people, we sit down with brands and and companies, and we help them build influence through uh, the power of storytelling and storytelling through video. Um, so essentially, we like to say we're we're videographers on steroids because we're videographers that can give you the amazing product that you're looking for but we're also the videographers that can give you the strategy on the back end to make sure that this product that you're looking for actually does well. And it's not something that you just post and say, okay, it should be good enough. Um, but it's, it's just very interesting to see that growth and see all three of those points. I mean, I already, I wrote down the times because that's an amazing snippet to already uh, promote for this podcast, because it's something a lot of people that jump on, we have amazing conversation, but a lot of people don't take anything out of it. And those three sure. points are something that you can take directly out of it. But moving into your agency and what you're doing today um, and seeing the the switch, we talked about it before we started recording as well, seeing the switch from big business um, to being very family oriented and making sure that you're spending time and their employees are spending time with their families um, I see on Instagram a ton that you are constantly spending time with your family and no matter what you're doing, you're actually devoting that time to spend with your kids and everything like that. What, what, as an entrepreneur today, I know that this company is going to take a majority of my time, but there's entrepreneurs out there that are cutting off family they're cutting off friends just to kind of push their, push their business, um, to the next level. What kind of advice that could you give them to make sure that they they are spending time with their family and they're they're spending time with their loved ones that will at the end of the day help them push their business forward yeah i mean that's very that's very tough i mean people struggle with work life balance or work home balance or whatever forever um i i do i do me the 
based upon kind of my father was the opposite. My father traveled and was not around a lot when uh, I was a child and when I was a, a teenager. So I know like if you're you know at home with your mom all the time and you don't see your father and your father's not involved and your father's not around um, because he's working, um, that's just a dynamic that I very, was very, very, very familiar with. So when I got married and I had ended up having kids, I think one of the ways that I try to, you know, straddle the work home life is I actually talk to my children a lot about work. And part of that is, is all three of my children are Gen Z. Okay. And so, you know, it's not really a joke, although I say it, and that is I'm kind of done with millennials. Like I, we've already placed our bets. We've invested, you know, I, um, have been an investor in Phase Clan, which is arguably the number one esports team. Yeah, um, a whole bunch of other stuff that you know, I've kind of learned a lot about that. But now, you know, I have three children, and I know very clearly who they think is hot as a, as an artist, who they think they wear, what they eat, why they eat it, what their brands are synonymous with, and so they provide me a lot of guidance on why they like certain things. So, you know, I find that I'm able to spend time with them because I actually do a lot of cultural research with them, whether it's I bring them, sometimes I'm fortunate to bring them to meetings, I bring them to exhibits, I bring them to installations, I bring them to, to product demos. Um, so they're able to see, exhibit, um, see and understand, absorb, and then they're there's no filter from them. They tell me what they think about it. And so, you know, bringing your kids to ComplexCon, bringing your kids to MIA, um, bringing your kids to Art Basel. Um, and so that's one way that I've been able to kind of, you know, keep the two very, very close. I don't think they're ever integrated. Work and, and home, I don't think can be integrated. And I I go to offices outside of my home because I do want some separation to think. I want some separation to, to really kind of bang out a lot of you know, quality work that's uninterrupted. But in the same sense is that if you are in that office that is isolated, you're not going to get the feedback loops that I think are really, really important to being creative and getting exposure to new ideas and concepts. And, you know, I think that my kids have a pretty good barometer for, you know, what is going to be relevant in the next three to five years. And, and I think that's important to listen to. Um, and so that's kind of how I'm able to, to be genuinely, I think, involved in, you know, kind of the home life while still, you know, not sacrificing any of the amount of work because, you know, I guess I'll shut off the office from maybe 5 p.m. or 6 p.m. to to 9 p.m. And then the office opens back up at 9.30 p.m. to probably 1 in the morning um, from emails, calls, whatever. And then, you know, after 1 a.m., we shut it down and we start all over again, you know, at 6.30 or 7. That's awesome. And seeing, I mean, obviously that's uh, a different approach to to 
obviously having a family and battling between that work-life balance. And like I said, it's a, it's something that a lot of people struggle with today. So it's a constant battle. And it's interesting hearing, um, it's a question I ask a lot on the podcast and hearing everybody's answers and seeing the different ways they go about it. And this one's definitely intriguing because you're actually getting the next generation's input and um, seeing how it actually changes and how each industry changes based off each generation. You're getting kind of firsthand knowledge, which is awesome. Um, but moving into what you're doing today, and I see that you're going to, I think, Paris Fashion Week, and I see that you're working on a ton of different stuff. Do you want to talk about what you're working on, whether it is Fashion Week or whether it is something that you're working on at home here? Um, what are you working on right now? Yeah, there's probably two big projects that taking up, you know, a big bulk of my time. Um, one is that I've been in charge of designing a customization experience um, for Puma's flagship retail store. Um, the flagship opens on Fifth Avenue, 609 Fifth Avenue, which is between 48th and 49th Street. Um, in uh, August 28th, August 27th, 28th is a soft opening. August 29th is official. Um, and the customization space is a 700 square foot space where every couple weeks uh, I'm inviting in a new artist or a new designer to design a two week residency for him or herself where they get to share their customization method to Puma's consumers. So you could come in and for two weeks you can meet with an artist like Sue Tsai and learn how to do painting and embroidery patchwork and pinning. Um, then, you know, in the next month you could come in and it's Thursday's finest out of Brooklyn who's doing 3D knitting. Nice. And then the next month it will be um, Brian Wood for B. Wood down in the village and he's doing kind of splicing jerseys and creating customized uh, mashups of jerseys from motorsports to basketball, um, etc. Um, and then we have folks that are doing washes, dyes, hand painting, um, you name it. So. Um, we have Chinatown Market, who obviously is known for the laser gun and, and laser printing. So um, that experience kicks off at the end of this month in August in New York City. Um, so everyone should come by and check out the new Puma flagship store, uh, August 27th and 28th. Um, and then come up to the second floor to the customization space and, and learn about the history of customization methods, um, learn how to wear things. Um, learn how to make things, um, et cetera. So that, that's a project that I started um, about 18 months ago. So just to design a customization project in retail takes 18 months. Uh, also, shout out to my friend uh, from Birch Coffee because I brought in Birch in New York to be our cafe partner inside of the new Puma flagship. So Birch Coffee will also be inside the second floor of the flagship. Um, and the second big project is, is I'm designing uh, or producing uh, the New York Fashion Week show um, September 10th for Maria Jankoy. And Maria Jankoy is an amazing Siberian designer. She lives in Brooklyn today. Um, she has designed uh, both a ready-to-wear collection based on upcycled Puma um, track suits and Puma uh, fabrics. Um, and, and also she is doing a, releasing a collab with Puma. So the New York Fashion Week show, which will be at FIT, um, the Fashion Institute of Technology on uh, Tuesday evening, September 10th, 
will be a runway show showing both the Ready to Wear collection and the Puma collab collection. And what's interesting about her and telling her story is she's very much into um, what we call cultured clothing. And that is every ethnic group and culture has always had its own roots and its own characteristics and its own traits um, in apparel. And so she's been able to bring out that apparel for her in this first collection that has a lot of ornamental visuals associated with Siberia. And yet she uses upcycled sportswear like from Puma to kind of, you know, say, listen, we don't need to keep throwing out sportswear. Let's upcycle it. But I also want to tell my story as a designer who has come from Siberia. Um, so her collection, which is an amazing collection, will show uh, Fashion Week uh, on September 10th. So I've been designing and producing that, that entire show, which includes everything from helping her get the exhibition, the set, um, model selection, performance, collections, dressers, all of that um, built out and, and, and uh, installed over the course of the next couple of weeks. So it's been a, a pretty pretty busy August or will be continue to be an enormously busy August for me. But those are some two pretty big projects that will wrap up here you know, sometime uh, right after Labor Day, which, you know, hopefully will be, uh, everyone can come out and check out. That's awesome. That's, that's amazing. And seeing, obviously, the, I, the flagship store, I'll be in, uh, hopefully, New York, September 17th through 19th. So I'll go and check out the, the customization space and everything like that. Um, but that sounds amazing. And seeing how, I mean, obviously, you guys have, you and, and Puma and everything that you're doing has, um, a direct impact on someone's life. It's amazing. Um, and seeing, it's really cool how um, the Siberian designer actually upcycles and sustainability is something that's huge right now and making sure that uh, we're using products and clothes um, from before. And I think the vintage market, obviously, with Sean Witherspoon, um, it has kind of blown up and all these other upcyclers, uh, there's one in, from Milwaukee that's now in LA. His name is Peter Cho. It's uh, utopia.us on Instagram. Uh, he's going to jump on the podcast as well. And just seeing he, I mean, he took a DiGiorno's pizza box that would have gone into a uh, landfill in LA and made it into a over the shoulder bag. And <laughs> It's something that he rocks um, and other people have offered him hundreds of dollars for it and he's told them no, but now he's um, getting shit product all the time and actually recycling and upcycling more than anything, which is something um, that a lot of people have to keep their eye on, especially in the fashion world. So I appreciate you uh, jumping on. I don't want to take up too much of your time or anything like that. I think a lot of people have had um, anybody who's listening have taken a ton of stuff out of this conversation and something that we do differently here um, on Strange on Purpose and specifically when I'm a host is I like to get people on six months to a year uh, from our, our first recording date. So let's say six months to a year from now, I want to see how these projects have, have kind of directly impacted you and how you've kind of grown from the, these projects. But then how is everything else going? What are you working on in a year or six months from now um, that you're really excited about? So um, I'd love to have you on six months to a year from now, and hopefully we can uh, catch each other in person here very, very, very shortly. Awesome. I love it. That would be great.
Awesome. Well, yeah, we can. Uh, I'm going to keep you on for like two seconds after to thank you, but I appreciate you jumping on. And the last thing I do have to ask you, where can people find you? Instagram. Um, I am Growny is my Instagram handle. And um, you'd be surprised how much business I actually kind of get through on Instagram. I've been, I kind of dumped Twitter, I dumped Facebook, I've been contemplating dump, dumping LinkedIn. Um, and Instagram seems to just be a great place to connect, a great place to share ideas, um, a great place just to stay in touch. And so you can always come to find what I'm up to at I Am Growny and, and connect and see if there's opportunities to, to, to work together. Awesome. Yeah. Um, I, we will link that. If you're watching on the YouTube, it's below. If you're not watching on the YouTube, I am following Matthew. So you can uh, go through my Instagram and look for him, or you can go to the YouTube and click on the link and follow him through there. But I appreciate you again for jumping on and thanks for jumping on Strange on Purpose. Yeah. Thank you.